0: The People get ready to explore in a way you never have before with the Defender 110. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design, a reimagined exterior, a robust interior, a superior off-road capability. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. It has powerful innovations like intuitive driver display. Whether you're headed to uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration, the Defender 110 is up to the challenge. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, look, I'm sure you take a lot of vitamins. Maybe you take a daily multivitamin. Maybe you take ones to boost your immunity or ones to help with alertness. What about your cells? Are you giving your cells the full nutrition they need, especially as we age? I am, thanks to Solgar. Solgar is part of my daily routine, thanks to their cellular nutrition line. Give yourself a daily collection of nutrients designed to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Visit cellularnutrition.solgar.com to learn more and use promo code Mark Maron, all one word, to get 20% off. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Delics? What's happening? I'm Mark Maron. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I am, uh, I'm back, I'm back in my garage, I'm sweating. I'm back from Montreal, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a good time. And I, and I don't say that lightly, even though I got an email from a woman named Connie, who insists that all I do is talk about how great I am, and how talented I am, and how, uh, how well I'm doing with comedy. She says that's all I do on every show, and that, you know, she's concerned I might be entering into a danger zone. Because all I'm talking about is how talented I am. And no other talented people talk about how talented they are. And it's just it's just she's concerned as a fan that I'm, uh, I guess, being too confident and enjoying myself. Connie, fuck right off. Seriously, Connie. Stop listening, please. I can't take the condescension and your fucking, you know, buzzkill soul suck. Just, Just fuck right off and stop listening. I don't care how big a fan you are. Don't write me. And tell me to stop talking about how much fun I'm having doing stand-up. Finally, after 40 years, Mark can finally talk about having a good time without feeling some sort of weird shame or disingenuousness. And fucking Connie, fucking Connie says, back off the self-praise and uh, excitement and pride back off, it's too much, it's unseemly, Connie said, unseemly Connie said to, uh, pull back from, uh, enjoying yourself, Connie, let me tell you directly, and all the Connie's out there, uh, I had great shows up in Montreal, I mean, really great, and can I just say that, you know, despite what anybody thinks, or what anybody knows, or whatever criticism may come to me from people who, uh, don't like themselves or sense a tone this new set is good i'm doing good work and i had fun in montreal despite the fact that connie buzz killed me and all the connies for all the connies fuck right off but see now some people go like she got under your skin you let her get at you that's all she wanted is it you know, I don't know what people do or what people say. I just see what they write sometimes, whether on any media, social media platform, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Twitter, whether it's my email. It's like, did a human being sit down and write this on purpose in a conscious state? You, at some point, you're like, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to send this email. And 99% of the time, it's a them problem. And I appear to be some sort of passive garbage can for their projections And uh, psychic refuse. No. No can do. No Connie dumping in this fucking can. So listen. Neil Gaiman is on the show today. And uh, Neil Gaiman is a very prolific fantasy writer, novelist, short story writer, comic writer, Sandman, American God, Stardust, Coraline, and Good Omens which he co-wrote with Terry Pratchett, are all books he's written. The Sandman comic book has been adapted to a live action series for Netflix and premieres this week. And I'm not a deep gaming nerd, but I did go through a Sandman period. I spent my time with the Sandman during a very weird part of my life when I was in a a slightly drug-induced psychosis, psychotic state post-Los Angeles post first uh, shot at uh, sobriety and my brain was fucked it was highly mystical mystically paranoid i didn't go with the big pharma jew world thing i went right to the completely fucking vague uh demons and dwarves and gods and signs and symbols magic and somehow Hellblazer and Sandman were not just entertainment for me. They were journalism. <laughs> yeah. Journalism. You hear me? That's how fucking out of my mind I was back in the 80s for a couple of years where I thought Hellblazer was like, no one knows this, but this is just the facts. Sandman. No one knows this, but we're, he's just reporting on what is. So look, Montreal, I think I talked about it leading up to it that I was having some kind of PTSD-related uh, spite triggers from having gone there in 1995 as just some sort of Dirk with a mic for Comedy Central, though I was a comic who thought he was on, on a journey of uh, edgy comedy, and there I was, I took a gig, short attention span theater, they sent me up there, man with a mic. That's where the amazing interaction with Jonathan Winters happened the first time when I went up to him and crazy, crazy uh, Dick Cavett was wandering around. He saw I was about to interview Jonathan. So he took my sound guy's headphones and they sent me out with a question. I walk up to Jonathan. And I was like, hey, Mr. Winters, are you enjoying the festival? Have you seen any comics that uh, young comics that you you were impressed with? He's like, no, nah, I haven't. Uh, I haven't gotten out of the room uh, uh, my wife is sick back at the hotel room. And I said, uh, Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry to hear that. Sorry you're going through that, Mr. Winters. He said, uh, yeah, I should uh, never put her in air cargo. And I turn around and, and Cavett is cackling. You ever seen a cackling Cavett? It's something, it's something. But I've been going up there for years, for better, for worse. And for some reason, it was putting a zap on my brain. Like it, there's something about me, even with interviewing people, doing this show, doing what I do, that if I don't do it for a week or two, I feel like I don't know how to do it. My brain just does that, and I drift, and I go, and wherever the hell my brain goes, most of what I experience is uh, what my head is generating. A lot of it's not great. A lot of obstacles in my head. And then the first night I was there, uh, the first day, the first show, this, the place I played, it seemed like 120 people, was just great. I had... Uh, Lara Bites opened for me. She did like 10, 12 the first night. And then uh, Allie Colbert, she, uh, I, I'd seen her on TikTok or a reel or something. And I ran into her up there. And I just said, do you want to do some uh, time before me? She was great. And uh, I enjoyed the shows. And I was happy that uh, the people that got tickets got tickets. Listen to me, Connie. I had fun. I had fun and I did great shows. And the people there really enjoyed it. And I was glad I did them for the people that came out. I'm very good at comedy. Yeah, I'm not... I don't think I have to tell you guys that. But I need to tell Connie that again and again. Connie, listen to me. I'm fucking amazing. Don't you guys know that that paired with the utter insecurity and fucking psychic turmoil that goes on? Can't you hear a guy that's drowning in himself? Don't you know what's going on, Connie? Come on. So the gala that i was so concerned about i went over to, to that theater here was the good thing and this is just shop talk i guess but the, in years past they shot it at a place that must have seated between three and four thousand people and it was impossible to have a good show so i was haunted by that and thinking that i had a hosted an evening of that was like kind of daunting but i was like i had it coming that's how i saw this gala I booked it two and a half years ago. It would have been special and, and important a decade ago or more, but uh, but now it was like, all right, I'll do it. It's not gonna change anything. I'm not gonna, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 I appreciate the opportunity. I had it coming, though. But I went over to see Patton, who was do- hosting it the night before me, and it, it was half the size. It was a 1,200-seater. And most of us have played 1,200-seaters and i was talking to Patton for a while and i went out on the stage and like there's just some part of me that lives out there and for some reason if i get off of that stage for a week or two i forget that i i I live up there that there's a, a mark that lives up there and i just i got on stage an empty stage the night before and i was like oh fuck yeah this is gonna be fine laid out my set the next night did the run through did the rehearsals I, I had not done the job of hosting in a while where you got to be sort of gracious and keep the flow going and and ride that line. And, but a lot of people there to, came to see me and I did a lot of uh, the material uh, that, you know, I don't think I'll be doing on the special. And also talking about Canada because it's going to be my future uh, uh, residence, hopefully, if the paperwork clears uh, and you know, I got to get it in. I'm almost done with it. But uh, I want to have the option. I'd like to have uh, some kind of permanent residence situation up there. And I, because I'm very, I just like it all, it, it all rolls off me up there. I, as soon as I get up there, no matter what city or town over the last year, I've been a lot of them. I just relax. I feel better. I like the pace. I like the people. The food is fucking great. I just, I'm like ready. And by the time my, the stuff processes, you know, it'll probably be a few years from now. And, you know, I might be, you know, if, if everything hasn't burned up down here, it might be nice to spend half the time in the beautiful uh, country of Canada. Because you know why. You know why. So now I talk to Neil Gaiman about Sandman, about music, about other stuff. I tell him. I tell him my experience with him. It's good. Ten episodes of the Sandman begin streaming on Netflix this Friday, August fifth. This is me and Neil Gaiman. You want to wear those? Sometimes they help.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, it was nice for knowing what your voice is doing. It is, right? When I was starting out, yeah, as a young journalist, it would or young writer, I guess, getting interviewed, yeah, and people would ask me to wear headphones. It would drive me mad. I'd have to get right. one thing off, and it was listening to my voice. But I, somewhere in there, doing audio books, yeah, I got over the sound of my voice. Oh and yeah, it, it no longer cringe and stuff, and I can just think of it as a musical instrument. Yeah, and I know what it's doing. Yeah, and so. I love the headphones because I yeah. can do different things going, oh, this is exactly what it's doing. And it sure you, you don't play, you're playing the instrument less approximately yeah. and you can get more precise.
0: That's right. And when you're doing audiobooks, you're, that's hours. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and that's going to be, it, you're going to be doing it for three days. Yeah. And you have, you have a director there who's uh, telling you like, you know, do another read on that. Yep. Do you do voices when you do audio books? Yeah. Always. <laughs> you do like all different characters? Yeah. That's course. great. That's the um, where would be the fun if you didn't do that? I don't know. It depends what kind of book it is. You know, when I was reading my uh, memoir, it was really just me, different variations of me. Sometimes I'd be like, ah, you know, and other times like, yeah.
1: You know, the 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 weirdest one for me, the yeah. only time I still look back and go, did I do the right thing? Yeah. I have no fucking clue. Yeah, um, is I did a collection of my nonfiction called yeah. "The View from the Cheap Seats." Yeah, and. That one is all fine except it contains in it two interviews. One with Stephen King, yeah. an article about Stephen King that contains an interview. Yeah. And an article about Lou Reed that contains an interview with Lou. Yeah. And so for both of them, I'm like, do I try and do a Lou? Do I try and do a Stephen? And I just and at the time I was just like, Yeah, I'm gonna go for it. You did? And I so and I it's the only thing I've never dared wow. go back and listen to. It could be awful. It could be fine. I you don't know. You did Lou. But it was just like going, you know, trying to get that, yeah, kind yeah, of Lou. Slightly nasal. Slightly nasal. Slightly. Deadpan. Very, very New York. Yeah, right. And just try and get that, that Lou voice in yeah. there, you know.
0: You interviewed him? I did. That must have been. I have a... Uh, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Lou's, and I tell a story about meeting Lou Reed and how I, you know, I was online at a record store and I just really wanted to ask a question that would resonate. You know, I was in college, and I think I waited. And it, the guy in front of me was wearing a white jumpsuit and he had an amp strapped to his back and he was playing guitar, and I was like, why this guy? <laughs> so, but I get to Lou and I just say, Lou, what gauge pick do you use? You know, like, like mm-hmm. that would be, that would really connect. And he said, medium, man, got to use a medium. And that was it. The big moment. But you know
1: what? I, l- I love that. Yeah. I really love that because you gave him something that he could answer. Yeah. You didn't fuck it up. Yeah. And it's so, I, I mean, I get people in lines. I don't do a lot of signings anymore just because they go too long and I can't cope. The saddest thing in the world is when the person gets to the front of the line in front of you, and they've been there for five, six hours, and in their head, they've been going I've got my question. I've got my question. It's yeah. going to impress him. I'll, t- I'll say my question, and then we'll be best friends. I've got my question, and it's obscure. Nobody's ever asked this question before. Right. Well, I'm going to ask this question. And they get to the front, <laughs> and their question has now become the most important thing in the world for them. Yeah. And they can't even get it out. Oh, or when yeah. they do answer it, you give them the wrong answer or yeah. whatever. And it's just like this. Yeah. And you go, oh, why didn't you just get to the front of the line and say, hey, I love your books? And I could have said, thank you.
0: (laughs) Were they shaking? Sometimes they're shaking, they're nervous. Sometimes they shake, sometimes they faint. It's all Do they? You get fainters?
1: I've had a few faints, not a I lot. Can't, not I can't enough.
0: imagine what the... Well, first, let, let's talk about Lou. So when, what year was that? Lou I interviewed
1: in about 1990, okay. maybe 91, and I then met him for dinner in 92 or 93.
0: And what's your, what are your feelings about
1: the Velvet Underground? I think the Velvet Underground are the most important band that America produced
0: in the 1960s, full stop. Really? Yeah. I, I, I'm uh, agreeing. I'll agree with you. I interviewed Jerry Harrison yesterday and we talked for like 30 minutes about Jonathan Richmond and the modern lovers. Who wouldn't have existed without, I mean,
1: Jonathan Richmond talks about essentially the scales lifting from his eyes and hearing the first Velvet Underground album and See, and then going to whatever it was, 60 different Velvet
0: Underground gigs yeah. in, in Boston where they were playing. Yeah, as a kid. Yeah. yeah it, it, I, think, I think it soothed him. I think that the, the layers of sound that the Velvet Underground created was like just perfect for his brain. I think they were,
1: the the, the, the Velvets for me yeah. are like a sort of resonance test. They're like, Okay. They're like when somebody walks over to a, piano key and they hit it hard yeah. and the other keys resonate and all of the other g strings in the room resonate yeah and nothing else does yeah. And for me that's the velvets it's like the people who resonate to the velvets they heard that yeah. and they resonated right and everybody else heard nothing at all and it yeah. might not have existed
0: and, and then without them you don't get like brian
1: eno even like later brian eno and you don't get david bowie you nope. don't you, you there was stuff that Bowie stole from, oh yeah, the Velvets. That was so important to you know. It's the stuff that gets you from the man who sold the world to Hunky Dory
0: and Ziggy and everything off. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I uh, I listen to them all the time. Still, I can't stop. Really, you Me too? Absolutely. Which uh, which albums?
1: All 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 four, and I have a very very soft spot. Full loaded. Me too. And fully loaded. Me too. And I will, I, you know, which was, I, I feel was unfairly written off. Yeah, Sweet Nothing is one of the best. I'm Absolutely. Oh my God. Um, so yeah, I just love, I will go and listen to that album and just put it on in the background and there's Dougie Yule singing Who Loves the Sun oh, and yeah. Everything is yeah. Perfect. It's
0: great. So were you,
1: are you a musician? No. Never um, in a band or anything? I was, I, I was, I, I'm... As a sixty-one year old English person, yeah. of course, I was a punk <laughs> in nineteen late seventy-six, Th- early seventy-seven. So of course I was in a band. To require musicianship. There are photos of me and my band back then. Um and I and I, I'm really pleased um having, you know, married a, yeah, she's, a, uh, a performer yeah. um, and got to see enough backstage areas and enough buses and enough gigs over the years. I'm so glad that I didn't go into that <laughs> life and become that thing.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's... Uh, didn't quite have the talent, but it's, like, so good that I didn't spend that. I love the backstage time. That moment before I go on stage doing stand-up, like I, I, to me, like, when you're just standing there, or if you're doing a TV show, that's that's a great thing about show business. If you're backstage and all of a sudden someone walks a horse through for the yeah. next piece, you're like, oh, this is show business. I, I love
1: that about being on late night interview shows <laughs> yeah. more than anything else in the world at the point where you know all of a sudden paris hilton trips over you on her way out and you're like sort of yeah. i just oh yeah. dear i just tripped up paris hilton exactly. you kind of
0: apologizing yeah and you see them and they're like r- kind of real people yeah and they have this that moment of vulnerability of a regular person a- and you're like and they're approximately real
1: people i remember being on a early early morning yeah news TV show in New York in nineteen ninety f- no, yeah, local nineteen ninety-five <laughs> or nineteen ninety-six yeah, yeah. in New well, York yeah. and um to talk about a book and I'm standing there and somebody is standing in front of me. Yeah. And I and he looks vaguely familiar. Yeah. And I tap Dave McKean and uh, say, that guy, who who is he? Yeah, and Dave says, "I don't know." And then he walks in and sits down, and suddenly he's in front of the camera, yeah. and I'm like, "Oh, I know you! You starred in a Clockwork Orange." You. Are- it was uh, it was It Milk. was McDowell, Malcolm McDowell. Do you know uh, him? Now? I don't. Yeah. But I just loved the fact that I didn't recognize <laughs> him when he was a human being, <laughs> just a
0: person. Yeah. He
1: was just a person. Standing, but a vaguely familiar one. And yeah. the moment he's in front of the camera, yeah. and I'm looking at him on
0: the screen, that makes sense. Yeah. So I need. I have to ask you questions, and I have to tell you exactly where I'm at with Sandman. Um, f- I I'm not a big comic book. guy. I didn't grow up that way, and I'm I'm almost like your age, right? So, but for some reason, in, when in the late 80s, I'd spent time out here, you know, starting in comedy and getting, you know, fucked up on drugs. And I went back to Boston to kind of reconfigure myself. And, and I had a mild cocaine psychosis going on. All right. I was Sober. And uh, and somehow or another, I started with Hellblazer at the first ep- at the first issue, yeah. and 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 being not a guy that had a vocabulary or or a context for comics in general, Hellblazer for me in that state of mind sort of made sense. I was like, this is real, <laughs> yeah. and uh, this is possible, and this guy's in between worlds, and that's how I felt I was. So through Hellblazer, I get Sandman, so that's where it starts for me at at the first issue and i go through like you know 20 or 30 of them or 40 of them even i think i went up and dug up my old comics and i have a lot of them i don't know where it it and i and i have the 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 death one the the, yep. the first graphic novel but it all it was all something not just soothing in an entertainment way because i don't know how to take fantasy in as entertainment as well as somebody who is sort of a fantasy nerd but i it, i needed it to make sense of the world and uh, and I wonder, in, 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 I imagine that's in, in some ways how most fans of it are, right? I
1: think most people use fiction to make sense of the world. Yeah. They use stories to make sense of the world. Sure. And I think sometimes fantasy allows you to process things that are happening and process information in ways that... I think sometimes it's just like an oyster and a pearl yeah. you're getting to cover it in a shiny layer right. of something that's actually going to make it hurt you less sure um and sometimes it actually gives you a way of thinking that you didn't have before so uh, an, an example of that would be the character of death, right, and when I created death, I thought, you know I just want a death that I would like to meet, yeah when i get hit by that car somebody who will be standing there saying yeah someone will say you know you really should have looked both ways before crossing that street hi okay we're going to move on to
0: the next thing (laughs) and also there was i like that there's a a reprimand (laughs) because the character that that evolved was somebody said well it's your time there was not there was not judgment is there judgment i don't think there's judgment but i think
1: there's a certain amount of practicality (laughs) yeah Um, yeah and and she's a grown up and I thought I like that just a death that I'd like to meet and over the years um, probably the biggest responsibility that I feel like I I have from having been a writer in my life the number of people who've come up to me and said you know your your Sandman comic it got me through the death of my son it got me through the death of my mother or my lover or Mm. or my uncle or my friend Hmm. and the idea of thinking of your death being with them at the end let me cope mm. and that doesn't mean that the person believes that what i wrote was true right it means that it gave them a way of seeing things that let them hold on and made things easier for them
0: yeah i you know i it's that's a powerful feeling to, to to receive that from somebody and and then to be gracious about it and and really know that was not necessarily your intention but it's a beautiful uh kind of result of what your work is
1: absolutely i, I and it would never have occurred to me right. that that would have been the result and that i would have now you know three decades of that i got to take kirby howe baptiste um who is in plays death in the sandman yes. tv show aside yes. at san diego a couple of days ago and i said look this is this is kind of a bit more serious than the normal conversation that you're going to have with somebody at, at the convention as yeah. an actress. But I have to tell you, this is what I've been doing for the last 30 years. People have been coming up and saying this to me. And I guess you need to know as this character that f- probably for the rest of your life, people will come up to you and they will tell you about the deaths of people who were important to them and tell you that you or the character that you played that they saw on television got them through something hard and that's going to be a responsibility and you're going to have to kind of live up to it and I, it is a gift that i give you and i know you didn't ask for it yeah because you just signed up to be
0: an actress in a show but you have this now too be, but but the responsibility is to be is to be present and receive, you know what what the the gratitude. That is exactly the responsibility,
1: and I think Kirby is actually somebody who will be present sure. and will be there for them. Which real well, not I've met a lot of actors. Not all of them would be. Um, right. Some of them would just be going. They would be mentally going. Is this person talking about me? Mm. Can they do anything for my career? Are they telling me that I'm a wonderful actor? No, then I will move on to the next place. Kirby, I think, will. Sure. Is, isn't that person and will carry that burden. So,
0: like, and I'll, tell me about like, during the period where I was losing my mind a bit. It comes back, you know, once you, by the way, once you uh, clean up, it takes a couple years, but it comes back. But there seemed to be room in my mind at that time to, you know, indulge in the idea of of practical magic mm-hmm. and of, you know, it, not getting deep into it because I really couldn't make sense of Crowley. Uh, and I know that references to Crowley and sort of Crowley himself, even in 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 this new series of Sam and, or a guy based on Crowley uh, shows up. Yep. So... How deep did you get into Crowley?
1: Not very deep. I I wished I I probably would have got deeper if I'd liked his prose style. It's difficult. I I found his. I'm always impressed by you know Alan Moore and those guys yeah. who 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 find something beautiful in it and get deep into it. I was repelled. By the prose style, and what are they, what are they? The Cantos, or is that Ezra Pound? Who, what, Ezra he, Pound is uh, no Ezra Pound. I love. He was appalling. He was monstrous. He yeah. was a terrible, terrible person. Yeah. But his writing was so good,
0: right? But didn't Crowley write a series? There were numbered poems. Oh, there yeah. were pieces that were they were impenetrable, and to me, I I, I found lots of his stuff
1: impenetrable. And I just found his whole writing style kind of clunky. Um, but I loved the idea of him, and I loved the idea of creating a character who was one of those magicians based on loosely on Crowley. There were a whole load of them. There's um, there's one in the wonderful Night of the Demon movie. I'm just looking up the guy that put your guy, Charles uh, Dance. Charles Dance was my guy. What a great actor! Isn't he marvelous? Yeah. He's like,
0: he's been around forever too, right?
1: He is. And he has that lovely sort of star quality thing of imbuing the part that he's playing with every other part that he's ever played. Sure. And the whole history, you know, and so you look at him and you go, ah, yes, you are that Lannister who is going to get it in the guts on the loo. So the magic thing though, you never bought in. I never bought in. And I guess I never, but I never bought in because I'm a writer. And for me, and it's, it's, it's weird because I know a lot of writers who love that stuff and who are bought in all the way. And They do the love, rituals? They, yeah, they, I mean, the, the. but for me, <laughs> um, when I was about 22, 23, yeah. I was standing on a railway station platform on East Croydon Station in London, South London. Yeah. And I saw somebody holding a newspaper. Uh, And the headline was, Werewolf Captured in South End. Yeah. On the Sun newspaper. And my heart sank because I thought, oh, I I don't want anybody to have captured a werewolf because if they capture a werewolf, then werewolves become real. Yeah. And then I have to deal... Then all of the imaginary werewolves that I could ever create... And now subsumed into what an actual werewolf is. And it would make me really sad because I want the ability to imagine anything. So I much preferred the idea of magical systems that I could invent. And if I would... Research magic, which I would from time to time. I'd research like a magpie. Yeah, I'd just be looking for the shiny bits. I go, oh, I like you. You're a good secret word, and oh, okay, you're how the Rome, uh, you're you're how the Romans did this thing. Good. Right, I, I will I will use you because I can, you know, mash you into this little bit of Kabbalah that I also know. But it's but it's much more as a.
0: Much more as as a convincer, right? So you're not a historian; you're you're somebody that that sort of uh, you know takes this stuff in, figures out like you know how it can be repurposed or suggested or open up a door to something else within the story you're telling. Absolutely. And then when you get to something like American Gods, you're just mashing them all in. I, people <laughs> would say to me, "How did
1: you do the research for American Gods?" And I said, "I read everything I could for forty years." <laughs>
0: brought them all you summoned them all it was all there but i mean i mean how deep do you like you know what is it it, is it just to inform your story or do you like like would you do you do the same type of investigations that you know joseph campbell does you just just read joseph campbell oh
1: i tend not to read joseph if if ever i can i will go for primary sources yeah because primary sources are always much more interesting it's much more interesting to read the edda the poetic editor and the yeah. prose editor than it is to go and read the ways that other people
0: have retold Interpret the stories. It. So no golden bow.
1: No, I, I, I actually have the, um, the giant Fraser golden bow, the yeah. 13 volume one, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. I have not read it yeah. all, but every yeah. now and then I pick it up and read some of it with enormous delight. Yeah. Um, I love that it exists. It's the same for things like the white goddess. Yeah, the white guys, yeah. I love that they're there. Yeah. And I love... <laughs> but they don't have to be right and they don't even have to be wrong they just have to exist yeah. and people had to write them so, and I love that in
0: some way you're you're involved in the same project only yours is fiction yeah yeah but i'm not sure
1: that there's quite as fine a line between <laughs> fiction and <laughs> fact on that stuff uh-huh. because the truth is one of the things that i've learned as a writer of fiction yeah is when you start making things up yeah because human beings are designed to find patterns in things, we are we are pattern making and pattern discovering animals. Mm. Um, the universe will start providing you with things that back up your pattern. So, right when so, I will come up with a fictional scenario set in the past or whatever, I will then start finding evidence that this thing is absolute uh, and. Absolutely true. Here, and I've got this, and this will back it up. And I have to sometimes remind myself that I'm not actually—I don't actually believe this. Right. I've just really realized that this is my story. And look, here's another piece of evidence for my
0: story, and this is another piece of evidence so for my you, story. In, in terms of like, you, you mean when you set it in a year or or place that you find historical pieces that 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 add to it that somehow justifies it as a truth for... Oh, a absolutely. Bit. You
1: can uh, start coming up with a historical fiction, and the <laughs> facts will start marching to get into line. And it actually makes me incredibly sympathetic for anybody who has any kind of conspiracy theory. Of course. Because I realized if you have a conspiracy theory, the facts will just march, and they'll get into line, and all of a sudden, you know, you'll discover that, well... This person was at the same school as this person, so they must have done this thing. It means nothing. And it means absolutely
0: nothing. But yeah, the brain wants to make those connections. Brains make patterns and brains find patterns. And then then if you attach belief to it, that's when the trouble starts. Exactly.
1: (laughs) It's like, it's real. And you have to be able to go, it's real for certain given values of real,
0: but... Well, it can be real, like, like I was talking about with, with my brain, is that you know it can be real and then it has to just become provocative. Like it, 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 You know, you want to make it real, like a conspiracy theory, fine, but if you are able to, and I, I hope this, this catches on, you're able to take yourself out of it for a minute and say, well, there's really no fucking way that this, it can be this convenient. History doesn't work that way, but because I was thinking that way, it made me think about this in a different way.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's the important bit. I love that you discovered Sandman at a time when you need it. Yeah. I love that it gave you what you needed Sure, at the time that you needed it. Because I think that really is the point of fantasy and the fantastic is it gives you a little holiday from reality, but then it sends you back into reality to see it. Haunted. Yeah, but also seeing it from a different angle, yeah. seeing it anew, seeing
0: something freshly that you're familiar with. Well, yeah, especially if it's emotionally engaging, uh, like Sandman is, and how you you know put all these characters together. But even you know watching the show, but you do get a feeling. It does make you feel. So then you go out into the world with that feeling, and then it takes however long it's going to take to shake that. Yeah, to seeing it through the lens of Sandman, right? I love that. And I, you know, it's like
1: when you get a really weird and really real dream and you wake up from it. And your day is going to be colored by it. You yeah. know that. You, yeah. Y- and on one level, you really know that you weren't just hunted. Sure. By the KGB through Ireland. Yeah. For smuggling bunny rabbits. But <laughs> that was what happened to you. And now you're going to have to go through the day. And you're really sad because you did actually see uh, your yeah. child who you... For some reason, never met in real life. Yeah. Shot in front of you, and
0: that's going to colour your whole day. I had one last night that was very disturbing, and I'm just—I had to stop myself from, you know, getting in touch with the guy that was in it. Yeah, because you know, I didn't want to bother him. But it was like it—it it stuck with me. I don't know how long it'll stay there. I hope it goes away soon.
1: They do stick, and I think that a good fantasy novel gives you that, and a good—and a good writer lends you their eyes to see through, and you just don't see the world. In quite the same way for a little while, and that's got to be healthy.
0: Yeah, I guess so. As long as, like, again, you don't attach belief onto the fantasy, and then you know start a cult. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's the weird thing now about, like, even in the in in the world of of comic inspired stuff or the business of comics, that there is sort of a an almost slightly fascistic vibe to uh, to uh, superhero fans. I think there are there are various different groups
1: sure. of all of these people. It, it's that thing where you go to you go to San Diego Comic Con. Never been. Ah, uh, it's it's a monstrous, awful thing, like a giant tumor, and at the same time, it's a magical, liberating Woodstock of the mind for yeah. all of these kids, and yeah. those two things. The fact that it's a monstrous commercial machine and it's a liberating thing can both be true. Okay. And they both are. Yeah. And somewhere buried deep in that is a tiny little comics convention. Sure. um, Which is still going on. Yeah. And and I love the fact that there's still the comics thing
0: happening. I guess I'm critical of... I don't know... I I don't watch them, the superhero movies. Because I don't really grow up with it. And I'm sure I would like them Okay i I was in the Joker for a minute, uh, and that got a lot of flack because I'm publicly sort of critical of Marvel movies, and I did a DC movie, and I had to pay the price for that uh, a little bit. But but I but it, it is kind of bizarre to me how aggressive and and how hostile and how possessive and weird uh, that fan base can get. It it, it seems you, you, you almost uh, like a religion a little bit. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I. I... You know, the weird thing about Sandman is I didn't have to deal with those guys very much no. over the last three decades because Sandman demanded a certain level of literacy and a certain, and it wasn't really a pre-adolescent power fantasy. No. So that's ten- where they get captured. They get sort of stuck in in early, you know, pre-adolescence and... It matters so much to them. I remember a guy, a comics fan who's dead now, Yeah. Um, talking to him once, and he was complaining about a writer-artist named John Byrne changing Superman's origin yeah. story. And this is, you know, we're talking 30-something years ago yeah. now. But he, he said to me, you know, he's he said... John Byrne did all the stuff, and 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 it it just destroyed my life. And I said to him, "Well, why did it destroy your life? Is it because you were the world's number one Superman expert, and now you're not? Or or, or what is it?" And he said, "Well, well, it, it, it's a bit that, but but it's much more that that he brought back Superman's." Clark Ken's mom and dad and, and they're dead in the comics and and, and my mom and dad are, are both dead and I can't bring them back. Wow. And I suddenly thought, oh, you've been using Superman all your life as a way of holding on to reality and holding on to the world and using it for order and the fact that you knew all of this stuff was what gave you protection against yeah. the world and huh. now something fundamental has changed and it's hitting you in an incredibly basic way yeah and that sort of gives me an enormous amount of sympathy sometimes for these people who just get overinvested and angry and upset and you go look you're you know you're somebody who's been using whether it's iron man continuity or superman continuity or whatever to hold on to and understand the world and now something is somehow threatening the thing that you thought that you knew and and you have to try and fight back and you just want to tell everybody that you can't bring your own parents back from the dead.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean that does put a different frame on it. Because but it seems to me that most of these superheroes are retooled, you know, generationally. They're always retooled generationally, yeah. and that's, um, you know, that's
1: their strength. Like Alan Moore, what did he do to the Swamp Thing? He changed the whole thing, didn't he? Absolutely. And he, you know, I think Alan Moore's Swamp Thing retooling was where it started for me yeah. um, as comics. Just going, oh my gosh, you can, I, I, I remember reading them and suddenly going, oh. That thing that I thought that you could do when I was a teenager that I then thought you couldn't do, where you make comics that are as important and as literate and as smart as anything on the stage, anything on television, anything in the cinema, anything in a novel, you can do that because this guy is doing it. Yeah. And that, for me, was absolutely a revelation. That was the gateway. It really was,
0: but I didn't realize until today, really, uh, that that Sandman was sort of a retooling. Well, what was
1: lovely about Sandman was what I took. What all I took was the name. Yeah, Um, there was a Sandman was one of the very first DC Comics characters in 1939. Really, in uh, the this guy in a gas mask putting superheroes to sleep, Uh and then in the. Early nineteen seventies. So he was—he was a villain. No, he was—he would put bad guys to sleep. Oh, bad and leave guys! A, right, right. Leave a calling card on them, saying the Sandman. Okay, an has anesthesiologist. Been, exactly. Yeah, he yeah. had his gas gun. Okay, he yeah. had his gas mask. He wore a trench coat and a hat. Um, and then in the nineteen seventies, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby created. The Sandman, and this was a sort of goofy children's superhero who lived in dreams yeah. and would battle the lobster men from Pluto and Oh uh, protect them during their dreams? Yeah. It was yeah. it was silly and funny. Yeah. And it lasted about six issues. And that one I never forgot. And I always thought I felt like the idea of somebody who lives in dreams was never properly exploited. Mm. So when I was asked by DC Comics if I would come up with a monthly comic the idea of taking the name The yes. Sandman and making somebody who lived in dreams and also I was young. Yeah, I was I Written, You know, I published a handful of short stories before Um, you were. You were a writer, though. I was a writer, but I was a primarily nonfiction writer. And I didn't know if I could do a story every month. Well, were you a comic book kid? I'd been a comic book kid. um, Absolutely. And then I'd been sort of a comic book kid until I was like 17. And then suddenly I wasn't interested in what comics had for me. And I walked away. Was that the punk rock time? That was the punk rock time.
0: And, and different concerns? Did you become political? Did you become like a, I, a nihilistic? What?
1: I just didn't think that there was anything. Uh, the things that had interested me about comics didn't seem to be there anymore. And I had no patience for superheroes even then. Well, d- where'd you grow up? Uh, Sussex in England. And like what, how many sisters and brothers? Two younger sisters. I was the oldest. And um, what was your parents' thing? My parents' thing um, was mostly Scientology when I was growing up. That was their thing.
0: Now they must have been early adapters. I they mean, were. Uh, it must have been the first wave in British Scientology.
1: They were the first wave. So that was that was their thing.
0: So were you were you able to become fascinated with that, or did you just see it as this weird thing your parents were doing?
1: I think what it gave me. Um, I think that the, what was great for me looking back on it, yeah. I don't think I knew this at the time, was I'm going to a high Church of England school, very religious but Christian school. I'm a Jewish kid studying for my bar mitzvah. So they kept the Jewish thing going. They definitely kept the Jewish thing going. So they they looked at it as more of a self-help thing? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and there's Scientology going on in the home, and I'm like it gave me a wonderful sort of vantage point going, people believe all of these different things. People, okay, but I don't have to believe any of this because I can be over here and not believe that. I can be over here and not believe that, which means that, you know, it's kind of like the thing with, where you start talking to people about what gods they believe in. Sure. And you go, you know, isn't it amazing that you don't believe in all of these gods and they don't believe in all of those gods but somehow out of all of the millions of gods human beings have come up with that didn't exist you found the one that did yeah um and so for me it was uh,
0: it it kind of gave me this kind of anarchy of belief well, you it, like one in in a sense one canceled out the other and you were able to not canceled out but you were able to see belief as as a choice in a way, or an action, as opposed to you know, uh, uh, there's one only thing. Absolutely. If I was going to believe
1: in anything, I was going to believe in Harlan Ellison short stories. Harlan Ellison. I was yeah. going to believe. So in... you're already
0: reading that stuff. Oh yeah. But the thing about I, you know, I, I don't know if it was apparent at that time if if the approach to Scientology was not as as uh, expansive and 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 uh, I don't know if there there was tithing then or how organized the church was, but I mean, as it became m- more established. The, the mythology within it is is definitely science fiction shit. Absolutely. Was that um, there then? It was. But what
1: I liked best about that was just the idea of a lot of people who didn't seem to think that being a science fiction writer was a failure as a profession. <laughs>
0: no, um, he was and, the guy.
1: you know. And I thought, okay, cool. So being a science fiction writer. And I, I, I think I was kind of disappointed when I grew up and I wasn't a science fiction writer. So I was you, a you saw that the, the science fiction writer could be, you know, could create a religion. I definitely got to the point of going. It's a good thing to be a science fiction writer. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's, but it's a good thing to be a writer. <laughs> you, it's fiction.
0: Fiction read, seems
1: safe. Did you read Hubbard's books? I read some of them and and liked some of the early science fiction stuff. You did. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but I loved reading. There was there was. Um, God, I, There was a book called Death's Deputy that I enjoyed uh-huh. and a book called Fear uh-huh. that I really enjoyed.
0: And they stayed in the church throughout your life? Yeah. Huh. So so the church grew around them? Yes. I mean, they were there. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Um, but I think for me... Your sibling Scientologist? Yes. Mm. Um. But I think for me, what was really interesting was just having... All of the access, yeah. as a mm. even as a really small kid, to fantasy novels and science fiction novels, yeah. they were always around the house. Sure, I'm still not sure, looking back on it, quite who was reading them. Yeah, um, because I don't think my dad was ever a big science fiction reader. Yeah, and I know my mum never read science fiction, and it certainly wasn't my sisters. So they must have sort of come through with people leaving them there. Yeah, but. Um, It's like when I was about seven, there was a box of comics, American comics, that was left in the house. And I remember discovering for the first time the Justice League of America and Green Lantern and Brave and the Bold comics and all of this kind of stuff. And... For years, it's baffled me. Where did they come from? Who left this giant box of American comics? And the last conversation I had with my dad before he died, I was saying there was this box of comics. He said, oh, yeah, I know where that came from. I will tell you. And then he died. Stop it. No, it's true. <laughs> uh, he did. And I never found out where that how, box of how comics long ago came from. was that? On. That was 2009. So not too long ago. Not too long
0: ago. Now, so... Do why don't more, you know, how come there's not more weird Jewish shit in the stories?
1: There's a certain amount of weird Jewish shit. Yeah. Um, I, I like to think of myself as being somebody who has weird Jewish shit in the stories. Yeah. My my favorite is...
0: I don't know them well enough to maybe make that statement, but maybe you could tell me, lead me to oh, some.
1: Well, for example, um, a lot of the stuff that I tend to put in is, I think, point of view. Yeah. Um looking at something like Good Omens. Yeah. Where I think of Crowley, the demon yeah. as incredibly Jewish. Okay. <laughs> because at the end of the day He just wants answers from God. He thinks that there's so much stuff in the world Uh that doesn't make sense. Yeah, he's a demon because he asked questions, because he hung around with the wrong people. He would still like answers. And he's questioning God. He's arguing with God. He's wrestling with God. That's the
0: great Jewish tradition.
1: And that, for me, is who Crowley is. And that, for me, is is one of the giant—the engine uh, that runs and drives Good Omens— Is Aziraphale, the angel, who fundamentally is convinced that God probably knows what God is doing, so you must leave God's plan alone. Sure. And you may have to fix things if it looks like it's going to hurt people, but but he's very sure that heaven is on the side of good. Yeah. And then you've got Crowley, who's just like... (laughs) I think Maybe. it's all screwed. It doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, Explain yeah. this stuff. Why yeah, would yeah. why would any yeah. why would any sane deity organize right. things He's like that? He's improvising. This? Exactly. So that for me is is fundamentally
0: incredibly Jewish. And you were conscious of that when you created it and when you were Absolutely. doing it. Absolutely.
1: Okay. Um but then you know there are things like you know the 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 old Jew saying the Shema before he dies
0: in, in, in the in
1: the series in the series. That's
0: a, a beautiful scene, is You know that was the I think that's the first death that yeah. that you see because that's um that's a heavy episode. There's a couple episodes that really kind of got me in because I watched all of them and you know having read the the comic years ago. And, and my my feelings about who Sam man was to me and, and and who the character was in the comics it was faded enough to where, you know, I, I could see that the guy fit the framework and he you know, it looked like the comics. And my, my girlfriend, who's younger than me, is like a huge Neil Gaiman fan. So she brought me a bag of things. Like she's got, you know, you defined her adolescence. And uh maybe she'll be here when you leave and it'll be a big day but but going into the series the first couple episodes I'm like all right I get this from the comics I don't know that and I understand where we're at but the diner scene with Thulus, and that character I don't think's in the comics is he, he? is but he looks
1: Kind of in the comics, he looks shriveled and oh, really skeletal and weird. So that whole
0: story with the mother and the and that's all from directly from the comics. It's all from the comics. Well, that scene in the diner, in terms of see, I need the reason. One of the reasons I'm ad, ad, fantasy adverse is I need a human entry point that yeah. that functions as as emotional in in a in a human way. Yeah so that whole thing you know that got me in to the to the series it was you know those interactions the truth thing telling the truth and where it goes and then you know by the time we get to death making her rounds all that stuff is my my humanity's open and in and it functions as something beautiful and devastating but yeah that was what that
1: was the way that i hoped it would work Mm. episode five in the diner is grueling. It's really
0: hard. Yeah. It's not
1: comforting. Awful things happen to people that you
0: love. But but it's a, but it's a, but it's the struggle of humanity. Absolutely. In, in a in a pra, in a practical way. It's You're, and it's
1: it's about being human, right? And it's these people, and it it gives you a story that you can hold on to, go through. It's going to leave you a little shaken. Mm. But then I feel like we give you episode six, we give you death, and we give you Hob and Morpheus meeting in the pub every hundred years, and yeah. they're healing, and they're both, in their own way, about connection, right, and right, just that, about the world working and the
0: world. Continuing. Those are the episodes that grounded in the world in a way, like in like in like day to day stuff, and you know, once I'm able to to sort of suspend. My disbelief in terms of just walking through these, you know, these landscapes, you know, that are, you, you know, when you have the dream world and you just, you know, sort of like, I'm building dreams towards the end, you know, you want to, you want to come see what I'm working on of like, all right, you know, you know, I can, I, you know, I can do it. I can make the jump yep. only because it's, it, it's grounded so strong in his relationship with the, with the waking world. If, you know, for me,
1: I like using fantasy to talk about things that matter to me and talk about the world that we're in that's just the way that i use it i don't think i could go and write a tolkien-esque fantasy where we're completely in another world you couldn't I, i don't think i have the engines i i hugely admire what george rr martin did Mm -hmm. in game of thrones because for me i if i wanted to do that thing i'd probably set it much more on earth and i think it would have been much more of a mistake to have done I, i love what he did and i love the way that it works um but for me a lot of what matters in fantasy is just who we are shining a light onto us giving us something to hold on to. And that was important for me in American Gods. It was important in Neverwhere or the Graveyard Book. And it mm. was important, um, incredibly important, all the way through Sandman.
0: When what stuck with you about the the sort of childish Sandman character, you know, that's the one that stuck with you. And, and when you started to build Sandman, what were the priorities? So the priorities for me
1: were I was going to have to come up with a story every month. Because the comic was going to come out every month. <laughs> yeah. And I had no idea if I could write a story every month. Yeah. So I thought, okay, what I need to do is create some kind of template that will allow me to do anything. So if I've got any kind of idea for a story, I can probably go and do it. If I have a strict kind of template, you know, it's it's the monster of the month or whatever. Sure then by episode five, I'm going to be tired of Monsters of the Month and the <laughs> whole thing is going to fall apart. Sure. So I need something that gives me something big. And the idea of the title character, of Dream, of Morpheus, of the Sandman, being an entity as old as the universe, being something that is in everybody's dreams, give I thought, well, it gives me historical, yeah. it gives me fantasy, it gives me horror it gives me science fiction if mm. i wanted to go there it gives me all of this kind of gives me so much stuff to sure. go into sure. <laughs> and Every, if I, anything.
0: I basically it's a story machine <laughs> he's been there forever and he's in people's dreams and he's in
1: people's dreams so it, that gives me a way into story and that was for me the most important thing just the most important thing that i could hold on to i, I and that was so, you ask what was in my head yeah. when I started creating. What was in my head right at the beginning was yeah. just, How do I? I got to write a story yeah, every month. Right. How do I do that? Practical. But what's lovely is once you start doing that and you start building, what I realized I was building was the foundation. And I could see the shape of the foundation. And that told me the shape that the building would be. Sure. So, it allowed me to actually. Come up with by the end of the first year. Yeah. So, what I did was, I figured, okay, this comic will be like most comics where a minor critical success is also a major commercial failure. Yeah. So, they'll cancel it about issue eight. Yeah. They'll probably give me a year because they tended at that time to give you a year. So, yeah. I'll get the phone call at issue eight saying, you canceled. Yeah, I have more. four issues to sort of finish off with. <laughs> I can do that. So I'll work out an eight-issue long storyline. So that's why the first issue of Sandman is eight issues. It's because I figured I'd get the phone <laughs> call there yeah, yeah, saying you're, you're canceled. Yeah. What came as a complete shock was when at issue eight, we were selling more comics than anything like that had ever sold. And I thought, oh, I'm safe I think I'm okay. They're not going to turn and cancel me. I'm and, selling... and you
0: saw it as something you could do with your life.
1: Yeah. I was like, okay, this is, I'm going to get to finish the story I started, which I didn't think I was ever going to, you know, I built things in, in the beginning of Sandman that I knew would only pay off if I got to the end of the story in the way that I wanted it to go. But what I mean, didn't ever think the,
0: I'd get there. The, the real end of it? I mean, yeah. you know, how many episodes? 70 75. Isu- 75 issues? Yep. So you, 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 saw, you, you knew enough about the arc at, in the first eight episodes that you saw your destination?
1: Absolutely. I didn't know how long it would take to get there. I figured it, well, I'd be there by about issue 30 mm. and was absolutely wrong. Oh, okay. Um, but I knew, you know, it's the equivalent of I'm in New York. I'm going to hitchhike to Los Angeles I know where I am, and I have an idea of the kind of places I'm probably going to go on the way. But then you hitchhike, and sometimes you don't quite go to the place you thought you were going, and sometimes somebody that you meet on the way becomes incredibly important to mm. you.
0: But at the end of the day, you still have that journey. It just took you twice as long. I get it. So, but when did you start? I mean, so right at the beginning, you knew that you were going to integrate, you know, It's mostly religious mythology, really, right?
1: It's all sorts. You know, I mean, what I love about Sandman is it's kind of a unified field theory of mythology and fantasy in that it's set in a universe in which everything is true. Right. And I remember doing a storyline called Season of Mists. And I thought, let me just see how far I can go with this. Mm. And I started bringing everybody onto the stage. And now I'm bringing the Greek gods, and I brought the Norse gods right. on. Okay. <laughs> How about if I bring on fairies? It's going to collapse if I bring on. Oh, okay, no, it's still the plates are still spinning, and I've got fairies, and now I'm going to bring on chaos and order from DC Comics, ripping off Michael Moorcock. Oh, yep, yeah, that's still working. Okay, what about angels? It's going to collapse if yeah. I bring on angels. No, it's still working, and it was a fascinating experience doing so that. So that's that's
0: the process. That was definitely the process of that show. Huh. That story. And then you could bring them and then like, you, I mean that must have led you to American gods in some way. It, I
1: think in a lot of ways it did. By the time
0: I'd finished
1: Sandman I was fascinated by the idea of new gods. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't original with me. People like Harlan Ellison and sure. Roger Zelazny and various people had talked about the idea of gods and belief. Um, but it was definitely a thing that by the Time I finished Sandman, the all of the stage was set for American Gods.
0: Yeah, and what what do you think was that 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 point? Why Sandman at that time did it take off like that? I mean, we talked a little bit about how it wasn't some ad, you know pre adolescent male fantasy. Yeah, you know, it was the opposite. It was, you know, it was it was slightly sexualized. It was it was kind of feminine but very masculine in a certain way. What? Unrepresented happened? masculinity.
1: So, one of the things so year 1 of me doing Sandman, yeah. The people who showed up at signings were uniformly male. Yeah. They were uniformly aged between 15 and 23. Yeah. And they were the guys in Who were there in line to get their comic book signed. Yeah. By year two, I was going to comic conventions and large sweaty guys, unshaven guys would would spot me and they'd come over and they'd go, I got to shake your hand, man. You brought women into my store. No women had ever come into my comic (laughs) book store and you bring women. You're the Sandman guy and you bring women into my store, man, I got to shake your hand. And they yeah. and uh, by sort of year three yeah. there were as many women as there were men yeah. in the signing lines and what was also happening was that i think a lot of the times the guys have been trying to get their girlfriends into comics and failing right and then they'd give them sandman <laughs> and the women would go oh my gosh there's something here and this is yeah. really interesting and then when they'd split up the girls would go off with the Sandmans yeah. and they'd give them to the new boyfriend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was, the Sandman was spreading sexually. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sexually transmitted comic. Oh, that's amazing. And you were getting that. And then a couple of years later, I'd go and do signings and I could no longer tell who was somebody's mother.
0: Who was someone's girlfriend. Who was
1: someone's girlfriend. Because actually these people were all Sandman fans and they weren't somebody there to get something signed for somebody else. And that thing of just having created an audience who hadn't existed before. Mm. And But it, did it eventually become more women? Uh, no, I think it pretty much stuck 50-50. Oh, yeah? Um, the, you know, Sandman readers... What we did was just expand the comics readership from people who had only been reading comics to people who were coming into stores to get their Sandman fix and with luck would discover Love and Rockets or, right. you know, 8-Ball or whatever.
0: Those are, that's where I went. I mean, that's, you know, I went... I always was sort of prone towards S. Clay Wilson and, and R. Crumb because that stuff is viscerally human to me and disgusting yep. and filthy and sexy. And, yeah, but I like 8-Ball. I like... Eight ball. I like uh, I like Charles Burns a lot. Oh, Charles Burns is brilliant. Oh, my God.
1: Many, many years ago, I was hired to do a film script uh, based on Black Hole. Oh, my God. And I was collaborating with Roger Avery. Yeah. And uh, who did Killing Zoe and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And we did a script, and I was so proud of it. And I got a phone call one day from Roger saying, hey, they've got this famous director on board to direct. Yeah. And I said, that's great. He said, no, it's not. He said, we'll be fired next week. And I said, really? He said, yeah, the director's come on board. Yeah, He's going to want lots of different drafts. He's going to fire us. But they used our draft to get him. And I said, oh, (laughs) are you sure? (laughs) You're kind of cynical, Roger. And then a week later, we were fired. Did the Um, movie ever get made? The movie never got made. And it makes me kind of sad because I think we did a great script based on that graphic novel cuz i love black hole so much. Oh,
0: it's amazing. You know, it's yeah. incredibly it's a beautiful. Story. The the full series in a book is great too. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. So, like okay, so once you get Sandman, you you've built this fan base and i and, and is that when you start running the short stories and the novels, you know, is that So, uh Good Omens was written with Terry Pratchett
1: while i was doing okay. Sa- Sandman, but um having done that once i never wanted to do that again because I would do occasional short stories mm. and let them mount up. But once Sandman was over, that was when I published Neverwhere and Stardust, mm-hmm. the first short story collection, Smoke yeah. and Mirrors. Yeah. And then rolled up my sleeves and did American Gods. Um, yeah, And I loved that Sandman had given me that. And it also meant that I could go back to Sandman whenever I felt like Whenever I missed it, basically. So every few years, I'd go back and, and do, do another a, Sandman project.
0: Yeah, and and uh, and and what the, the guy who did the covers, with, Dave McKean. Dave McKean, and he also did Hellblazer,
1: right? For a he, while, he did the. He started out doing the Hellblazer covers. Yeah, um, and then he was
0: doing Hellblazer and Sandman. Right. That's why I think that's what why it was. That was probably the gateway for me. Yeah, because I was reading Hellblazer. So many people came to
1: Sandman because of Dave McKean's covers, because they didn't look anything like anything else in the comic yeah. store. And and what, do you have a relationship with the creator of Hellblazer? Um, well, the creator of Hellblazer, I guess, was Jamie Delano. Yeah. was was writing it, and Jamie and I have been friends for years. And of course, the original creators of. Uh, John Constantine were Alan. Alan it was Alan Moore, yeah. Steve Bissett, and John yeah. Toddleben in, in, in Swamp Thing. In Swamp Thing, and and that came about because Steve and John really loved drawing Sting, <laughs> and they'd started drawing Sting in in the background <laughs> of things. And they said to Alan, "Can we draw Sting some more?" And that <laughs> became make him a character exactly. So Alan wrote him in uh. as this sort of basement level occultist yeah but like uh, but like uh, an occult detective yeah. yeah and um i had enormous fun because in sandman the comic i got to do one john constantine story but also got to introduce you to his ancestor lady joanna constantine from a few hundred years ago mm. and uh so on the tv show Oh, so that's Joe. That is—that's that a real character. So that was why I went. Well, we've got Joanna Constantine anyway. Back in the 18th century, nobody coming to the TV show is necessarily meant to be familiar with anything else. We're kind of starting in our own. I universe. was, and I'm
0: sort of like, is that supposed to be John? Did they replace John?
1: We replaced John with Joanna. Um, but you'll also—that's because we were also going to do Joanna. Back in the French back. Revolution. That's right. Yeah, and we're going to have some
0: fun with that. To the so that was interesting. The, the the way you put the the show together. What's been your experience with TV? Like, I mean, you, I mean, because a lot of people just sort of writers, especially, here, are kind of like, all right, you, you know, uh, you kind of get pushed out. I've had
1: really interesting experiences with TV. Um, I my first experience was making the TV show of Neverware. Yeah, in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, and just. Trying to do something that there wasn't a system in place to do in the UK at that time, Mm -hmm. which was frustrating. Yeah. I wrote an episode of Babylon 5, which was enormously fun, and then came back and did more television uh, with some Doctor Who episodes. And that was more educational than anything I can possibly say because I wrote two episodes and was incredibly proud of... A both script mm. and I felt like one script made it to the screen yeah and that one won awards and everybody loved it yeah and one script kind of got shot but yeah. it wasn't it, it wasn't done terribly well it wasn't done in but you're part of history you're part of history but I also yeah. looked at it and went hang on and you know I should have been I couldn't control anything yeah in this, right which meant that when Good Omens started happening at the BBC, I said, look, I think I actually need to be the showrunner on this. Not because I want to be a showrunner, because I really don't. Yeah. Um, but because I want to look after this, and the only way that I know that I can look after it and yeah. stop other people cutting things I wouldn't have cut or yeah. casting people I wouldn't have cast is if I'm in charge. So I got to cast David Tennant and Michael Sheen. Mm. I got to make my show yeah and because i'd made a show and got a lot of love and attention and eyes on it that meant suddenly warner brothers looked at me for sandman and up until that point They'd spent 30 years going, well, the writer of the original comics should be kept as far away from the property as possible while people make movies or whatever because what would a writer of the original comics go? And suddenly, Warners are going, hang on, the unique selling point of the Sandman TV series would be Neil gets to oversee it and be in charge of it and make it the thing that he wants it to be. And suddenly I was in this world in which I got... To make the Sandman that, until that point, would have been impossible. I'd watched so many bad Sandman movies <laughs> fail to get made yeah. over the decades. And just because
0: you were just a writer,
1: because I was just the writer, and also I, you know, I remember my first ever meeting. Uh-huh. Um, it was probably about March 1990, yeah, and I was out here in. LA for a Sandman and I was sent over to Burbank to the Warner's office yeah. and go in to see a, a president of Warner Pictures. And I'm asked, Neil, we've been, you know, there's a lot of interest in a Sandman movie. yeah. What do you think? And I said, please don't make it. I'm just getting <laughs> going with the comic. Yeah. It's just getting good. If somebody tries to make a movie now, it's going to throw everything off and it will be really weird. And I remember the exec saying to me, very puzzled. She said, nobody's ever come into my office and asked me not to make a movie before. <laughs> and I said, well, I am. And yeah. she said, okay, we won't make the movie. <laughs> and so that gave me about six so that, years of So relief. that was based just on what, how many comics? Did it- uh, at that point, I was in Season of Mist, so we would have been around Sandman 20.
0: Really? Um, that, that was bold.
1: Absolutely, but I knew what we were doing, and I wanted to be able to finish the comic that I'd started. Wow! Yeah. And then there were various other movies and good people trying to do this thing. The problem with the thing they were trying to do was they were trying to condense two thousand pages of story, yeah, into a two-hour movie. And you can't do it because by the time you've thrown everything out, that you need to make it a two-hour movie, it isn't Sandman anymore. Well,
0: well, that's well, well, that's what I was wondering when I was watching this. A couple of questions: How many seasons do you see?
1: Um, as many as we can do to finish the story. I think it's very silly in this weird era we're in to be over optimistic. Of course. So I, especially, were you Netflix? I, I'm at Netflix, but I think I would have the same worry if I were at HBO right now, or even if I was at Amazon
0: or whatever. So you really don't is, know. It's sort of like when you first started writing the comic. You, you might it, have to figure out a way to wrap it up after season three.
1: Absolutely. What you get, you get the they press the button to let you do the next series- when the first one has aired, and they've got the numbers in, and they go, yeah, okay, that's safe, and you can do another one now.
0: But this, is, but this first 10 is exactly as you wanted them. It really is. I'm so
1: proud of it. Ish. And I think it's so, it's not like anything else on television. I
0: think that's true. And, and, but, and also I think that, y- you know, your casting choices were, you know, righteous, and, and, and it was clearly a decision. Yeah. So how did that go? What it went
1: was, we'd look at the original comic, Mm. and when each character would come on, we would say, okay, here is a character. Is there any reason why this character needs to be white? Is there any reason why this character needs to be male? Mm. A lot of the time, the answer was yes. Mm -hmm. Cain and Abel, they both need to be male. Actually, they wound up played by two, af- two actors, both of Indian descent. They're great. Um, Very funny. But that was pure coincidence because they were the funniest and the best that sure. we auditioned. Yep. So we had them. Um, that wasn't even righteous. That was just going for the brilliant ones. And the Corinthian but has to be the Corinthian. The Corinthian has to be the Corinthian. So you look at things like that. But wherever we would get a character where it's like, okay... Lucian the librarian. What is important about Lucian? Yeah. What is important about Lucian is Lucian has been with Dream for over 10,000 years.
0: Oh, that's right. He was, like an old was man, f- wasn't he? Lucian the-
1: was the first raven. Yep. He was a tall, very right. really tall man. And Lucian is a librarian. Yeah. Is there any reason why that character specifically has to be male? No. Mm. Is there any reason why that spe- character specifically has to be white? No. Mm. Okay. That's good. Because what that does is double the number of people that we're going to audition for the role. It doesn't mean we won't audition white sure. male actors. Right. But what it means is we can get a lot more people in until we
0: find the right person. And that's the whole idea of it, is that the more voices, the better. You you, you, you can get surprised. Um, That's the amazing thing. I mean, Viv at Chiang Peng is
1: just amazing. Great. And she's wonderful, and she lands the part. Yeah. And, Two minutes in, she owns it, yeah. and you know who she is, you know what she is, and that's yeah. amazing. With death, which was a hard part to... Um, the, 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 the casting process was really weird. Yeah. The first one that we had to get right, if we didn't get it right, we didn't have a show, mm. was Morpheus. Yeah, he, I thought he was good. He's amazing, but and he lands it, and he came in the first email from the casting director, you know, she'd had, had four. She'd done four auditions, mm. she sent them over. Tom was the one from that that we liked. And Tom then had to basically wait while we saw, a, in the end, over 1,500 auditions. For? Um, for Morpheus. No. Yes. Um, we... Um, because we wanted him, but we kept looking at other people, mm. and then we were sure that we wanted him. But Netflix weren't quite convinced, uh-huh. and then the um, then the pandemic happened. Were so they not
0: quite convinced because they wanted a celebrity
1: or a star they, or a name? They would have. I think they would have loved a celebrity, star, name. But mm. I think they also just weren't. They weren't sure, mm. and they also just weren't sure we'd found the best. Mm. So when the pandemic happened they were like oh well we're not shooting in May now we won't shoot till November so why don't you guys take another few months and you haven't looked at every actor in Australia yet there are (laughs) actors in they grow good actors in Australia they do so we got all the Australians and we got and at the end of the day it was still Tom Mm. death was the other way around we had to cast death correctly we saw auditions yeah from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yeah of actresses who didn't land it for us we huh. had that we had a few things that we needed to be sure of we needed to love you yeah we needed we needed you to be able to talk to dream as his big sister and tell him off and we needed to believe that and you had to be able to deliver the dialogue convincingly. Huh. We had supermodels auditioning. We had so many actresses of all possible skin tones and shapes and sizes. So you're lucky you had the pandemic. We, we, really, we, we really went to town. And sure. it gave can... us so much extra time.
0: Yeah, And, and, and with Zoom, the uh, sort of unfolding as the way of communicating, it's it, so much easier. Oh my gosh. It is To make an appointment. No one's doing anything.
1: It's it was <laughs> fabulous. And we yeah. got we I think we got some amazing people just because they wanted to get out of the house. Yeah. Um, and also we got some amazing people because they were Sandman fans. Well, and but that was so lucky. How are the fans gonna react to Satan being a woman? Um given that the Satan, the Lucifer in Sandman when we see Lucifer naked, yeah. as absolutely nothing, nothing going on between their legs, I don't think people are going to have much problem. And Lucifer, she's great. oh, she's amazing. Lucifer was based at the time visually mm. um, on David Bowie, on young David Bowie right. okay, as a folk yeah. singer when yeah. he when he had curly hair, yeah.
0: he had a perm, yeah. and a and an acoustic guitar. I know. I did a I, movie that I don't know if there's a movie called Stardust that I did. Mm-hmm. I got very up to speed on on that Bowie, so that early young yeah. Bowie was the one that I visually based
1: uh-huh. Lucifer on. And so when we started, we were just going, okay, we want somebody who can do that. Uh-huh. And Gwendolyn Christie is six foot three; she is a human special effect. Anyway, you yeah. just look at her and she goes. Yep. Yeah. I think she's great. And yeah, she's and I thought she can do. She can bring everything I need to that part. And then you give her wings, which take her up to about seven foot six. Yeah. And then she towers over Tom Sturridge. And again, it was an idea of, okay, we need to find somebody who can go up against Tom that you would believe. And and that casting, uh, Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian, again, we needed somebody who was in every way... His opposite. He's much more easygoing. He's southern. He's charming. charming. He's yeah, yeah, so yeah,
0: yeah. funny and lovely. And yeah, that scene he's where, also a monster who will eat your eyes. Yeah. Exactly. But that scene at the serial convention, you know, where you, you know, Sandman puts him in his place or returns yeah. him or destroys him is uh you know, it 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 really it, it it is loaded up because of what's the guy's name just Sandman? Tom? Tom. Because he is subtle and then but when he needs to bring the hammer down he can do it he really in, can in the face of anybody in the face of lucifer or the corinthian
1: i mean one thing that i'm i'm certain of right now i have no idea whether or not sandman is going to be whether it's going to work or mm-hmm. not i know that i love it i know that we made something that I, that i'm proud of yeah. and that honestly is all i care about is I, I can hold my head up and go i made a really good sandman So I don't know if it's going to be a huge success or not, but what I do know is that 24 hours after Sandman drops, Tom Sturridge will be a star. Uh huh. Um, Because you can just see it. It's like people are going to go, "What? There's this
0: guy, and he can do that." Well, I think a lot of the acting, uh, because of the sparsity of, of the worlds, you know, even when they're in the real world, that the the sort when you say land a role in this context, I mean, they've got to own it you know, in in such a way that fills up the whole story in their moments. Absolutely. even Despair, which had very little screen time. Like, just her physicality was genius. That's, yeah, that's a marvelous actress called Donna Preston.
1: Yeah. And she, I, I... in awe of what she does, because you just look at her on screen, yeah. and she's every sad, wet, lonely Sunday afternoon, yeah. that you would probably kill yourself if you could just be bothered, but instead you're just going to sit here being completely miserable. Oh my
0: god! And then what? What was the device? Is that from the comics where she just sort of digs that hook yeah. into her face? That's that, that was in the comics, it's and it's just a interesting hook with how a ring she, on. Yeah, well, it's interesting the way she does it because it's it's almost like it's it's secondary. Yeah. You know, it's just in. It's just in conversation. It's what she does. And then when you're watching it, you're like, oh, of course, that's what she does.
1: She. It's such a powerful performance. And, and that
0: kid, uh, uh, Mason, oh. as uh, Desire. That way. Aren't very, they brilliant? Uh, yeah, amazing. Very little screen time, but just owns the whole fucking thing. Mason got cast
1: through Twitter. <laughs> really, really. Wow. Mason tweeted me. M- Mason was in yeah. uh, Cowboy Bebop, uh-huh. and while waiting to be filmed in Cowboy Bebop, which was shooting in New Zealand, uh-huh. they were in uh, managed isolation quarantine. So, which basically, and I've done it. They put you in a hotel room for two weeks, and yeah. they let you out two weeks later. Yeah. Um, so, I think Mason was going out of their mind. Yeah. In and looking online. And loved desire, and actually had a desire tattoo, which they showed me on saturday <laughs> and yeah, so just sent me a tweet saying, "Have you cast desire yet, and who's your casting agent?" Yeah, and I thought, there's something about this tweet that is not just a fan, <laughs> yeah, 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 there's something interesting about this, yeah. and I looked at Mason, looked at their went to their web page, uh-huh. looked at a few videos of them acting and performing yeah. in Hedwig and oh, things yeah. and thought oh you're really good and just dropped a note to Alan Heinberg the showrunner to say Alan yeah I think I may have found desire and just tweeted back and said you want Lucinda Sison who's our casting director uh-huh. and
0: that's how it happened
1: and that's how it happened and then
0: you got the real Hedwig in there too you got John Cameron Mitchell in oh, there he's such a, a genius great he's great you know he's great and you know, you've hidden Mark Hamill in a pumpkin head <laughs> which is nice. That's that's a nice Easter egg in general. It's, kind of
1: I think it's always a great and and I love that we've got scenes with um Matthew the Raven. Patton, I know Patton. Patton I or you, you know, putting Patton in context here. Yeah. The first time I was aware of meeting Patton, yeah. it was about Two thousand and I was doing a signing sure. at the Stinking Rose restaurant and a reading in San Francisco. In, uh No, in oh. in L.A. Oh. Um, however, the first talking to Patton, I discovered the first time I met Patton. Yeah, was in nineteen ninety two. Involved in uh, No, San Francisco. Oh, right. yeah. I was doing a signing at Comics Experience. Yeah for Season of Mists in Hardback, and Patton stood in line for three hours to get his copy of Season of Miss signed. That's so, when
0: I knew him. I lived in San Francisco. We were both comics. We both got to San Francisco at the same time, and he's a real comic nerd. He really is. So yeah. he
1: got his comic signed by me back then, <laughs> and so for him,
0: getting to play Matthew the Raven is the biggest dream come possibly true. It's so funny. Is Matthew some... Is there, like, what's the backstory? Some, uh, Kit, my... my uh, Partner was, uh, you know, saying it was based and rooted in Swamp Thing. It's rooted in Swamp Thing.
1: It was the idea of Matt Cable, yeah. who, Matthew Cable, who had died in Swamp Thing, um, killed essentially drunk driving, and yeah. then spent a while in hospital. And I loved the idea because I was perverse yeah. that I would never actually say that. In Sandman. Yeah. But you learn that he died drunk driving. You know his name is Matthew. You know he did some bad things.
0: So people put it together. I think that when you do another series, this is just a suggestion. Just my only note is uh, make Patton do the crow noise too. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: think, I think, you know, anything that we can do just to make things harder on both Mark Hamill and Patton, <laughs> make, them, the, make ah! them work a little more, I, I think
0: we should do that. <laughs> no, I thought, it was, uh, I thought it was all great. And I mean, and all the acting. And Thewis was amazing and all the supporting parts were great. And, you know, once I got into it, it you know, it's a challenging thing to do that world you know, because it's its own, it's its own world. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you, you, you have it engaging with the world that we live in, but even that is a special place.
1: Well, it's also a thing that we do in there where each episode is different.
0: Oh, and for sure. Yeah. That is yeah. not a thing that
1: you normally see on television. If you look at something like Game of Thrones. Right. If you like, an, if you like Game of Thrones, the next episode of Game of Thrones is going to be a lot like that last episode that you liked. The same sort of stuff is going to happen. It's so like, operatic. It's, Going to be, you know, there's going to be some fighting yeah, and sure. some breasting, and there's going to be some betrayals and yeah. big thing, and that's what it is, and that's what it does, episode to episode. Um, Sandman is going to reinvent itself. It's like a movie, and it's still the same story, but you could be in an urban horror story one episode, you could be in high fantasy the next episode, you could be in something approaching. A you know, a gentle, sentimental story sure. about life
0: right. next episode. And, and, but the threat is serving this grand arc of 75 issues, and you have to make these decisions about how to make 10 and then another 10. Exactly. And then hopefully
1: another 10 and then hopefully another 10. And then that's
0: it. Uh, maybe another <laughs> 10 after that. <laughs> well... I wish you all the luck in the world. It was great. Uh, and It was great talking to you. Thank you, Mark. That was so much fun. Neil Gaiman. I think I did all right with that. I think I did all right with that. The Sandman is streaming on Netflix this Friday, August 5th. Uh, please hang out for one second. Can you guys hang out? Can you? just Just stay right there. Hey, look, I'm sure you take a lot of vitamins. Maybe you take a daily multivitamin. Maybe you take ones to boost your immunity or ones to help with alertness. What about your cells? Are you giving your cells the full nutrition they need, especially as we age? I am, thanks to Solgar. Solgar is part of my daily routine, thanks to their cellular nutrition line. Give yourself a daily collection of nutrients designed to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Visit CellularNutrition.SoulGuard.com to learn more and use promo code Mark Maron, all one word, to get 20% off. All right. So, look, I talked to James Acaster up in Montreal, and I'm going to post that episode on Thursday. We had a nice talk. You know, we got got into it about an hour and a half, and I'd watched his stuff, and I was very impressed with uh, his colored mic and his interesting mic cord and i needed to know where he got it we'll find out on thursday on august 10th i will be at largo here's where you go largo-la.com i will be uh i will be there on august 10th okay it's not on my site for some reason because i'm a fucking idiot but this week, I'll be in Columbus, Ohio at the Southern Theater on Thursday, August 4th. Indianapolis, Indiana, I'm at the Old National Center on Friday, August 5th. Louisville, Kentucky at the Baumhardt Theater this Saturday, August 6th. What's that wheeze? Then I'm back at Dynasty Typewriter in L.A. on August 14th. That might be a Q&A show, I'm thinking. What do you think of that? Lincoln, Nebraska at the Rococo Theater on August 18th. Des Moines, Iowa at the Hoyt Sherman Place on August nineteenth and Iowa City, Iowa at the Inglert Theater on August twentieth. In September, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Boulder, Colorado, and Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In October, I'm in London, England, and Dublin, Ireland. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. And again, Largo, I just for, I forgot. I got should, is it too late to put it up on the site? Either way, Largo dash la.com. Uh, if you want to go to Argo on the 10th um, and that's like, that's good. That's about it. That's, I think that's all I got to say. And now I'm going to go look at my Sandman comics. I pulled them all out and I got a, a lot more comics than I thought I did. I wouldn't call me a nerd or a collector, but I have a few. And also some ex- extended guitar stuff. <laughs> what is that? Sorry. I just hiccuped. Excuse me. Excuse me. lives Monkey La Fonda, cat angels everywhere.